Hello there. My name is Stefan Frost, the host of Game Devastation, the podcast you are listening to right now. Just as a heads up, sometimes there are opinions on this show. Sometimes there are curse words on this show. Sometimes I just sob for about 20 minutes. I don't know why people keep listening to it. Anyway, all these things are from me. They're not really representative of the company I work for or previous companies that I've worked for. So just a heads up, then that's about it. Okay, legal disclaimer now over. This episode of Game Devastation is brought to you by Pixel Dynamo. You can find the latest news, reviews, and updates to all the games that you care about. Check out PixelDynamo.com or follow them on Twitter at PixelDynamo for your up-to-the-second news on the games you care about. Also, in a less commercial way, this is a pretty sweet site. So if you haven't checked it out, PixelDynamo.com, go read it. I think I said PixelDynamo.com enough. PixelDynamo.com. Okay, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to Game Devastation. My name is Stefan Frost. Today I'm joined with Adam Maxwell, also known as Snipe Hunter. Uh, Adam, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, so we had Chris on uh, like, I don't know, six episodes ago. So I'm going to do my damnedest to try to ask different questions about Revival uh, and more specifically to your background as a systems designer. Um, so to begin with, how did you get into the industry and how did you end up at Ilphonic? <laughs> wow, that's kind of a long story. Um, so back in the 90s before, uh, you know, honestly, even before I graduated from college i was a hardcore software pirate like i pirated anything i could get a hold of um one of the things i pirated was a copy of a game called warcraft as it turned out it was a qa build of the game of warcraft and i didn't know that uh but i liked it so much that i tried to go find you know find it in the stores and stuff and it was nowhere to be found so being kind of an idiot i sent a fax to blizzard saying hey how come i can't find your game anywhere flash forward to the next day and uh alan adham the guy who ran the company at the time gives me a call about six in the morning and he's like hey you should probably come in and talk to us about this because this game's not out yet (laughs) right and uh so you know i i figured oh my god i'm going to jail what did i do what did i do but as it turned out what they wanted me to do was come in for a job interview and i got my first job as a qa guy uh working on warcraft 2 as a result of that insane facts i sent them (laughs) So, so you were doing something illegal and you got a job out of it. Exactly. Okay. Uh, just for anybody listening, wouldn't recommend this course of action in the future, but yeah, that's awesome. I, I literally know no one who has done it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So, uh, you started as a QA tester at Blizzard and then where did you go from there? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, in a 97, right, right after Diablo shipped, um, a bunch of us from Blizzard left to start a little tiny company called Redline Games, uh, and we were working for Activision at the time on a title called Third World. It sadly never got published, but that was my first design gig. And then from there, I sort of bounced around, you know, to various companies. I worked for uh, uh, Kronos Digital, which did the Fear Effect games for 989, which would later be Sony. Um, and then after that, I came out here to Colorado, where I worked for a company called VR1 that later became Jalico, and then later Redline. Or, I mean, not Redline, but uh, uh, later I left them and worked for NetDevil. Uh, after that, I came back to California, and I worked on the Dirty Harry games for Warner Brothers. And then, finally, I got the job I really wanted, which was a uh, lead systems guy on the game that would become Rift. At the time, it didn't have a name, uh, so we just called it Hot. That was kind of its code name at the time. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the sort of system sensibilities that revival actually has sort of formed in my mind while I was working on that game. Cause originally that game was also going to be a dynamic content game. Um, and then oddly enough, after rift, I ended up back at that net devil company again, working on a, a Diablo uh, MMO called fortune online, which later became Marvel heroes for gazillion. And then, uh, after that, we, me and, uh, my partner, Chris Ombwa, we, uh, we started a consultancy called Skyward Corp, and we sort of hooked up with Ilphonic at the time. Um, Ilphonic's creative director is a guy named Kedrin Gonzalez, who we actually worked with back at NetDevil on the MMO Auto Assault. And uh, so we started working with them on their games, and you know we kind of got talking about all the stuff that we had wanted to do in games like Auto Assault and Rift and 
finally the three of us were just like, you know what, we should do it. And so ever since then, we've been working on Revival. So um, that you have a pretty extensive background in, in RPGs and MMOs and stuff like that. I wanted to get your definition. What is a systems designer to you? Huh. So I often call myself the worst kind of rules lawyer. Um, systems designers are kind of like uh, clock makers in a way. Like we, we build all the little things that mesh together and make the experience possible. So typically that's like, rules design or behavior mechanics or, you know, basically the, the clockwork of whatever game universe you're, you're building. Um, so, you know, where, where my partner Chris might be all about the lore and the history of the world, I'm all about things like what's the math that makes weather work or, you know, how can I get spell casting to work within the constraints that we've set aside for the game balance and the experience we want to get across. And so, you know, I just, I come up with the rules that make that happen. Okay, so I um, wanted to ask you, uh, you guys have uh, an interesting kind of take on combat for Revival. Um, I wanted to talk about what, what is your goal actually for combat and how are you going about implementing it for Revival? So it's interesting because actually uh, part of the reason that we're, we're doing combat the way we are is that we really wanted to bring horror into the world. And part of making horror work in video games tends to be uh, a reduction of agency. You know, you, you limit options so that people can sort of fear what's going to come. And we realized if we were going to make an MMO effective that we didn't really have that option. We couldn't exactly limit player agency as a way to make it scary. And so what we had to do instead was figure out ways to make the players work in um, uh, to, to limit their own agency, I guess is the best way to put it. So we developed the the combat system around the idea that it would be really hard to be the world's best at anything, um, not just because of, you know, what skills you had or what combat techniques you learned, but also just because the, the player themselves had to be, uh, God, I can't believe the words are failing me, but the player themselves had to be, you know, a component of that. And so we realized what we needed to do was start with a, a skill-based combat system. And, you know, we looked at all kinds of things. We knew we wanted to do the game mostly in first person, so we looked a lot at the Elder Scrolls games and sort of their experience. And and then we started looking at things that felt right. Um, and one of the things that we noticed was uh, the Arkham games from Batman were, were, like, really dark and creepy and scary. And the combat, even though it's all over the top and all over the place, is, like, similarly dark and brutal and kind of scary. And so we we're building our combat system with the idea that it has the same sort of complexity that a game like the Arkham series might have with its combos and all of that. But at the same time, we want you to not necessarily want to get into combat. And so individual fights are going to take a long time and they're going to take a lot of effort from the player himself rather than just, you know, pressing buttons on a skill rotation bar or something like that. So that it's, um, it's intense and it's high action for the player, you know, gets your heart beating. Uh, but also we don't want it to happen all the time, like I was saying. And so we needed to make it so that it's balanced in a way that when you finish one fight, you don't want to get into another one. You want to stop, you want to lick your wounds, you want to make sure that you're, you're really going to make it because if you're not careful, you know, almost Dark Souls style, you'll, you'll end up getting yourself one shot killed. Um, and so all of our systems are sort of designed to make combat scary, I guess is the best way to put it. Okay, interesting. Um, what do you think are the most important things to take into consideration when you're making combat? Uh, tempo, flow, um, and definitely sort of the, the visceral feel of it. And I hate using visceral because it's such a loaded buzzword at this point. But what I mean is if you can't engage with the combat that your character is performing on screen, it's never going to feel right. It's never going to feel like it has the right stakes. And so for us, it's What's the tempo of combat? Does it feel like you're expending the right amount of like personal energy to do it? Um, in the combat, can you make the sort of tactical decisions that make combat flow smoothly? Or is it more of a, I have a fixed pattern and I have to stay in it, in which case, you know, for us, that's a fail, right? So we had to make sure that combat could sort of branch organically based on circumstances and situations. Um, you know, and then last but not least, it's really got to it's got to feel right. It's got to feel like it's a fight. It can't just feel like it's some math that's going on with some cool animations on the screen. So uh, this, because this is an MMO and you were talking about kind of the mix of uh, Skyrim and, and Batman, those are single player games. 
how are you doing group combat with with those sorts of mechanics? Uh, so we're spending a lot of time making sure that situa situational awareness and sort of um, tactical maneuver play a big part in fighting, right? So a group of people isn't just going to stand around and fight. They have to be aware of where each of them are in the field at each time. They have to understand that one person can create an opening for another. Um, and there's a lot of like sort of complementary combat designs, right? So for example, um, we have a mechanic called the shield wall where a bunch of, a, a bunch of fighters can get together and they can form a sort of formation that is then commanded by a commander, right? And the, the commander can then direct people within the shield wall through the, the formations to, you know, bring pikes to bear through a phalanx to, to shell up, to, to defend themselves against arrows. Right. And the whole thing is about coordinated maneuver. When, when people lose their ability to work together, that sort of falls apart. And that's kind of the strategy when you want to break a shield wall, in fact, is to, to try to batter pieces of it so that at least one of them buckles and then you can sort of split it open and take the people apart. Um, so we're, we're sort of scaling up combat so instead of focusing just on you know one player versus one monster or whatever it's more like yeah there are big single monsters but even they'll take a group of people working together tactically almost like you know uh almost like the positional gameplay in, in a wow raid um but that's kind of the the norm right you know one of the things i said earlier was that we wanted to make combat scary and so generally speaking when you get into a fight, it's either going to be against, you know, large groups of people who have banded together for their own protection, or it's going to be against monsters and things like that that are powerful enough that they can take out a crew of players if they're they're willing. Um, so it's all about, you know, where you are in the battlefield and how well you can synergize with your other players, right? So if I'm the shield guy and I'm the only shield guy, then I, I want to try to perform the basic tank role, but I also want to make sure that in doing so, I'm positioning the enemy so that my friends can deal with him. Um, likewise, I have to make sure that I don't get like backed into a corner or that I don't get, uh, you know, pushed out of my own position so that I get into somebody else's, you know, uh, I don't want to say line of fire though. That's the modern equivalent of what I'm talking about. Um, in, you know, into their blade line basically. Um, so like I said, it's basically tactical and positional. Um, and that's a big focus on the way that we make groups work together. Now, are there classes in the traditional sense? Like, uh, there's a tank healer DPS or is it more kind of open to doing, uh, yeah, there's things. Or how does that work? Yeah, there aren't any um, specific classes, though there are definitely ways for players to specialize. So, in the the combat system, you know, you can pick up a weapon, any weapon, and you can you can use it like a layman, right? So, even if you've never picked up an axe, you can kind of figure out the sharp ends, the part you want the enemy to feel, and and any player can do that. But to become, you know. Uh, as good as a, you know, like a Viking Axeman or something, it, it takes uh, your character taking the time to learn specific combat techniques and uh, what we call stances, um, which sort of stances are almost like wrappers that hold a bunch of different combat techniques in them. And so you first learn a, stat, uh, a stance and then you learn the techniques that you can use within that stance. And so as an individual player, I might not be a tank per se, but I might have invested my character's time and effort into learning, you know, the best ways to use a kite shield or the best ways to stand in a defensive formation. Or, uh, you know, if I wanted to be an archer, I would pick up the bow and I would learn archery techniques. And if I wanted to be a long range, ar long range archer, I would learn the techniques of, you know, ballistic, uh, ballistic aiming. Whereas if I wanted to be a short range archer, I'd pick up a short bow and learn about quick shots. Um, with all of the various techniques that work. And so even though there aren't actually individual classes, players can absolutely specialize. So I won't say that we've actually done away with the Holy Trinity so much as said, Hey, if that's what you guys want to do, here's the tools you need to make it happen. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, so I wanted to talk also about trade skills and, uh, I know we talked a little bit with Chris last time that he was on about this, but I wanted to, to ask you, um, how do you create, meaningful trade skills uh so that players can kind of get in and feel like they're actually making a difference uh by doing the trade skill thing and it's not just i'm going to create a bunch of useless stuff that, that nobody's going to want um and then also how do you iterate on that regularly to to improve that sort of stuff yeah actually this is um a huge focus of the game we really didn't you know as i mentioned before we want combat to be scary but that also means it needs to be infrequent and so we couldn't really make combat the focus of the game um and so for us, we had to figure out ways to make the rest of the game just as important. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be 
the flip wordsmith or anything, but the trick to making trade skills meaningful is to make meaningful trade. Um, and so in revival, everything that is produced has a use, um, whether that's, you know, I need to eat so that my character gets all of the, the right edge from combat, from being, you know, satiated and not hungry, or whether I need to feed the people in my town, because if I don't, they'll starve. And if they starve, they won't produce the things that I need to buy. And then the town will, will, will dwindle and, and die. Um, and so we literally went, well, okay, what we're talking about then is building basically a massive world economy with individual, you know, nation states, each with their own sort of production focuses. And that led us to distribute the world's resources asymmetrically. Um, likewise, in order to control inflation, we decided to make resources more finite rather than infinite. Um, and all of this together sort of creates this ecosystem where even the NPCs want stuff that everybody can, you know, that everybody has the potential to learn to make, but only experts can make the really good stuff. And so, you know, from baking cupcakes all the way up to uh, producing, you know, the the newest version of something like the Necronomicon, there there isn't just player demand for these things. The world itself needs them and wants them. And, and the possession of these things in the world actually directs some of the flow of events. Um, and it's all, you know, based on, uh, and on the NPC side, it's all based on a basic, like, sort of needs-based AI system that, that works on several different tiers of scope from the individual all the way up to literally nations. Um, now, as for how to iterate on it, the trick is I don't think we're ever going to stop, right? Um, we talk a lot about how we want to do live storytelling and we want to have a live team working on the servers 24-7. And so we built a lot of these systems to be um, malleable while they're running so that we don't have to patch changes into them. And so the intent is that we will literally be watching the game all of the time. And if things stop being useful, then we'll either have to invent new uses for them and introduce new needs into the NPCs of the world, or we'll have to figure out whether or not it's okay to let that drop and to replace it with some new skill or whatever that will, you know, stream into the game and just make happen. Um, but it's pretty much the scariest part of what we're doing in that it's part of the, the I don't want to use the word nightmare per se, but it's part of the dilemma that is creating a dynamic content game, right? Because the, the production demand on new content like this just never goes away. You're always doing it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and also this, the scary thing, or at least uh, was for me when we were developing stuff on, on Wildstar was we would always have to think, well, you know, we think people are going to go this way for economy stuff. But when you actually get it into the world and see what happens and how players react to things and find new stuff like that, that was the hard part, I think, was reacting to it. Right. Because you're like, OK, theory crafting time. Cool. We figured it out. We put it in the game. And then now it's oh, shit, we need to react to this because there's a huge demand for this thing and there's not enough stuff to support it. So we need to figure out ways to get it in that sort of stuff. Absolutely. One of the games that was being worked on at NetDevil um, while we were there, we weren't. Uh, Chris and I weren't working on it directly, though we would often, you know, knock in and help those guys with like lore and stuff. But they were working on a game called Jumpgate, uh, which was like a space fighter game, kind of like a very nascent version of what Star Citizen wants to be, but minus like 99% of the feature creep, right? Um, <laughs> right. But it had a production based economy. Uh, and so if people wanted something, they would pull it like literally out of the world and there wouldn't be enough resources left to produce new ones. And so the game ended up with like this sort of feast or famine uh, behavior system where like you would log in and you'd be like, hey, I can't get any afterburners for my ship. They were called flash fires. And everybody would be like, yeah, that's because everybody bought them all and nobody's mining gallium. So get out there and mine, boy. And we were like, wow, that's amazing. But meanwhile, the people who were on the team themselves were like, this is insanely screwed up. We have no control over this. And so for us, we were like, oh, man, you know, if we're ever going to do something like that, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that when it happens. And so, you know, it's it's insane. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm super proud that we're doing it. But every time every time something like that happens, you basically have to have a team of people ready who can roll on it and just immediately respond. And that's a huge production demand. Absolutely. Um, so speaking with that difficult problem. Uh, I wanted to ask you, as somebody who's made a, a few MMOs, what do you think the most difficult part is about making an MMO? Oh, man. Uh, 
So I think honestly, it's it's managing scope, right? Like, I mean, we've been thinking about the pieces that make up revival for easily a decade, right? Between myself, Chris, Kedron, and the rest of the team, all of us have had ideas for what the perfect sandbox MMO would be. And we've been nursing these ideas, theory crafting them, as you were saying, for for like literally a decade or more in some cases. But like it's so easy to go, well, if we can pull off this, then can't we just take the extra five steps and pull off this? And if you decide to do it, then you're like, well, now we're only five steps away from something else. And so at the end of the day, you kind of lose sight of what the original purpose of the game was, what the original like target was because of all the other cool shit that you see that you pardon my language of the other cool stuff that you see that you can do. And, uh, I think that kills a lot of games. So, interestingly enough, though, I think the opposite is true, too. Sometimes people look at the potential scope, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes people look at the potential scope of the project that they're working on and they balk at it and they they back off and they sort of like, well, let's just do what other people have been doing instead. And so they end up killing games that way, too. So I, I guess what I'm really saying is the problem is staying true to your original vision. I, I don't know of any MMO that's really pulled it off yet. It's difficult to do. Um because there are so many things that change. It's not like I'm, I always have to make this comparison to people. It's not like movies. I feel like with a movie, you're kind of like, okay, we know what we need to shoot. We know the story. We know how this is going to go. And then we can kind of use that footage and then edit it down. And then boom, we've got ourselves a movie. Not that it's totally not that it's that easy or anything like that. Don't, don't get me wrong. But, uh, when it comes to games, it's, it's, you know, God, who's the guy that said, um, battle plan never survives first contact with the enemy. It's basically like you, you put something out there and then people will, will mess with it. And you're like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. So you have to adjust things. Absolutely. And actually, um, amusingly enough, I just put a blog out, uh, yesterday talking about how questing was going to work in revival. And one of the mechanics we have is this thing called contracts, right? Which are basically like traditional quests, except the players can author them for other players if they want to. And we were really proud of the way we'd set it up. And we were like, man, we covered everything from people, you know, skipping out and actually doing them to refusing to pay. We got all of this covered. I put my blog out, four posts down the thread. Somebody goes, hey, I'm pretty sure I can use this to be a loan shark. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not what I, oh, no. Right. <laughs> right? And like, I haven't even like given them the game to play yet. And they're already like, hey, check out this off book use. <laughs> yeah, it's, um. Players are crazy like that. Um, totally. Uh, so uh, another thing, speaking of, of the contracts and, and putting those things out, uh, are you guys planning on having PvP in the game? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we are we are allowing players to protect themselves from PvP uh, with this whole temple blessing system if they want to. But even then, we've sort of balanced the, the cost of maintaining those blessings against the average you know, expectation of play cycle so that it's very hard to keep yourself protected at all times. It, it is one of the more hardcore aspects of the game, but we wanted to make sure that it was a world where you were never really safe at any given moment. And to us, you know, the possibility of getting ganked is a big piece of that. So uh, lately, it seems to me that MMOs in general, uh, and whether you want to define these as MMOs or not, uh, I do because there's lots of people in them. So um, things like Daisy or Rust or, you know, H1Z1. Yeah, or Ark. Yep, totally. Yeah, or Ark, yeah. Um, those games are somewhat scary because if you die, you lose all your stuff, right? And then people can take all your stuff and you're like, no, but I spent days on that and now it's gone. Um, is that kind of the vibe you guys are going for as well, where you are, you're going to lose all your things? Like, how does death work for you guys? Yeah, actually, um, it, it's, a, it's amusing to me because I actually came up with the original idea that we all eventually fleshed out into our death mechanic as a way to avoid the negative feedback loop that I don't like in most death mechanics. Um, but as a result, we ended up making one of the more hardcore death mechanics I've ever seen. And so I'm not exactly sure we did succeed at what I originally set out to do, but what we've done is pretty cool, I think. Um, so when you die, you, uh, you kind of, you, you originally, you go ghosty kind of like you did in UO if you ever played that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you stay that way for a, a little while, which gives you enough time to, if people nearby have the ability to see you and speak to you, maybe coordinate retrieving your stuff or, or getting resurrected or uh, really that's about it. Otherwise they're going to steal your stuff. But um, in that time, you know, you hover around as a ghost and you have some amount of, of agency as a ghost, but there's really very little that you can do. So you couldn't stop somebody from stealing everything off of your body. Um, 
after that time expires, you get pulled out of that plane of reality into a different plane, which we call the plane of death, um, which is uh, at first glance kind of akin to the death mechanic in WoW in that, you know, everything's ghostly and gray and, and, and has some strange shaders and stuff on it. But in our case, this is actually a whole different adventure zone with a whole different way to play the game, right? So now instead of your gear, you have uh, techniques and abilities that are based on, you know, the, the strength of your mind or the, the power of your soul. Um, and you exist in this realm of the dead until you can find your way out. And there are people to meet there and there are things to see and there are reasons to even want to go there when you're alive. It, it's literally another adventure destination. Um, but the trick is, when you find your way out, you go through these things we call mortality gates. And, and when you come through, you're given, you know, we, we call it re-embodying. You're, you're resurrected back into your body. It's not the body you left behind, even though it looks the same. Um, so you leave all your stuff behind. Uh, and when you come through the realm of the dead, you're going to only have whatever you picked up while you were there when you resurrect. Um, so in a way, it's way more hardcore than any of the death mechanics that I personally didn't like. Um, but at the same time, it prevents that sort of, I died doing something, now the only thing left to do is retry, right? Which ultimately ends up, you know, like banging your head against a wall if you don't notice that you can't solve the problem and try to move on. And so this way, we immediately change your perspective, have you do something else so that when you come back to where you were, if you're still trying to work on that same challenge, you will have developed further both as a character and as a player before you get to try again. Um, and hopefully that will, that will help. But more importantly, what it does is it prevents the cycle of like respawn ganking. Um, the mortality gates aren't in fixed locations either. So you can't really, you know, spawn camp, right? Like we, we were really thinking about, in addition to breaking that sort of negative feedback loop I was talking about, we were also thinking about the other negative feedback loops that players can impose on death systems and trying to break those as well. And so that's kind of what, what it's all about. Um, but like I said, it's pretty much the, most hardcore death mechanic I've seen in a while because not only do you leave all of your stuff behind, but we make you go do something else entirely for a while first. Gotcha. That sounds interesting. Um, so uh, speaking of death, I wanted to talk to you about progression. Um, and how do you make progression something that is meaningful and that keeps players coming back? So they're, th they're like, damn, you know what? I've got to play revival again. I haven't played it in like an hour. Yeah, this was a, this was an interesting challenge for us because on the one hand we wanted the sort of, use-based player uh, advancement that you used to get in games like UO or like Star Wars Galaxies um, or even in like the, the older Elder Scrolls games, even the new ones, though they're, they're a lot more streamlined than they used to be. Um, so we wanted to do this, but at the same time, we wanted to make sure that, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I've got to jump 15,000 times today to level up my agility or anything like that, right? And so we wanted to avoid grinding at the same time. And we were like, well, how the hell can you do that? If we want it to reflect you space, you have to practice to get better. And so we came up with the idea of questing for knowledge, right? So every time you successfully do challenging things for the skill that you're trying to work on, you'll absolutely gain skill points and the skill points do have an effect on the game. You know, um, in the case of crafting where we have mini games for crafting, they tend to modify the conditions of the mini game positively or negatively, depending on how difficult the thing you're trying to do is. Um, likewise in combat, they might open or close windows to block or parry, or, um, they might allow you to learn different techniques, but that's the key. That's where the, the real progression comes in to become more capable, to become more versatile. You need to learn new techniques. You need to learn new recipes. You need to learn new stances. You need to learn how to handle new weapons. Um, and all of these things are taught, whether that's by literally finding, you know, the, the, the master in his hermitage at the top of the mountain or by finding an ancient recipe book or, you know, even in going to where the scholars are and sitting down and talking to the NPCs and learning about, you know, the various symbols of magic or, you know, um, like in a way sort of receiving a lecture. Um, and so progression is broken down into practice, which makes what you already learned a little easier right? And capability wherein you learn to do new things by seeking out the knowledge, acquiring it and mastering it. Um, and that second arc survives, you know, death changes in character stats, whatever, because that's based on what your character knows rather than on the current mathematical values of your skills. I think that also helps with the, the 
death mechanic too, right? Because the problem with something like Ark or Daisy or whatever is you lose everything and there is no character progression, right? So absolutely, that kind of helps with that. Um, cool. That sounds interesting. Uh, I also wanted to talk to you about what games you're playing currently. What are you, uh, what are you into right now? Interestingly enough, I'm playing uh, a lot of Ark. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I roll with a, a really small guild of, of like five guys and we were kind of between MMOs right now. And one of, uh, one of us was like, Hey, have you, checked out the dinosaur game and so we've been playing the heck out of that but it's it's not i mean it's absolutely an mmo in that you know there's like persistence of the world there's lots of people playing but it doesn't quite have the same sort of feeling that you know like a world of warcraft or elder scrolls online or or you know uh old republic would have right but there's something compelling about it all the same uh, so much so that I have literally woken up every day to find my my body rolled of everything useful, my hut destroyed, my right, but I still keep coming back to play. Did you um, um, did you happen to play Reign of Kings? I've mentioned it a couple times on this podcast, but um, uh, actually I haven't, but Ombois has, and he he actually likes it quite a bit. I just I don't own it yet, so I haven't had a chance to check it out. It so it is uh, it's still very much in early access, like Ark, I believe, um, and uh, I have yet to play Ark. Uh, I want to, but Reign of Kings is very similar to that, you know, same thing. And I got to this point of where I was like, man, I wish they had a mobile app so I could check on my base and my dude while I'm gone. Totally. You know what I mean? So it's like, absolutely wish, wish I knew. And it was, uh, it was getting kind of bad to the point of where I would, I would call my friends who were playing with me and I'd be like, dude, how's everything? Is the base okay? We all live? (laughs) What's the deal? You know, it's, uh, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, development in, in sort of, the MMO space is weird. I, I too have trouble calling them MMOs cause I'm just, I'm so used to like, wow. Or, you know, any, totally. anything that is the traditional MMO RPG. I think if you, if you drop the RPG part of it, then it's makes more sense, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, totally. No, I think that's exactly how I feel. I know what you mean. Yeah. So, uh, so arc, anything else or has that been kind of, uh, I've also been playing a lot of like subnautica and, uh, I'm, I'm trying my, damnedest to finish assassin's creed unity but you know most of those i play for like you know 20 minutes a week or something like just just a small session uh, my real passion has been arc of this last couple of weeks um but it's that same thing like we literally we have a guy in our guild who who works from home so he gets to play you know around lunchtime and stuff and so i'll be sitting at my office and he'll start chatting on Skype and he'll be like, God damn it. They blank, you know, they, they, they took out our fields, the irrigation tanks all broken. And I'm like, Oh crap, I got to go log in and fix that. Oh man. Right. Like it's super compelling. And, uh, it's uh, I haven't felt that way in a long time about an online game. So it, it's kind of become my crack right now. So uh, let me ask you about that. Um, why do you think it's, it's so cracky is the right way to ask that question. Uh, why do you think it's, it is so addicting? Why do you want to go back to it? Like, Similar to my point earlier, why do I want to check on my dude? Why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, I think part of it is that the stakes are so high, right? Um, you know, the the fact that you basically have to build up from nothing every time you die makes you worry about the fact that you're you might be dead. They also the way they leave your body in the world when you're not there is sort of an anxiety drive, right? Like all of a sudden there's something to worry about. I'm not safe. Uh, in fact, it's something we're trying to capture in Revival. Like, you'll, you'll, if you, you see our forums, you'll see me say it all the time. You're never truly safe in Revival, right? No matter how strong your locks are, there's a way to break them. No matter how powerful your wards are, there's a way to break them. Um, so, are, are you guys worried with uh, making it so brutal that uh, it's going to cut out a certain demographic that maybe would play the game, but now they're like, that seems a little too hard for me. I'm not, I'm not getting into that. It's not so yeah. So it's not so much that we're worried. It's that we know it's going to happen no matter what. And so we're kind of like, well, I guess we should just cater to the people we know are going to like it then, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And hopefully that's a big enough niche to keep us going. Um, just from what we've seen so far, it seems like it will be. But you know, we're super early in our dev process yet, so who knows? Well, I also wanted to ask you, uh, speaking of that, when are you guys going into alpha? When are people going to get their hands on the game? Um, so we're actually not exactly doing the traditional, you know, alpha public beta release sort of thing. Instead, um, we're developing the game in modules that build up on each other. So each of our milestones is like complete one whole feature, right? Um, you know, our first milestone is get the housing system to work. Um, and so we've let founders who are the people who buy houses right now, even though there's no game yet, um, they're going to get the first version of the client that has working housing uh, hopefully like 
any minute now. I, I don't have an exact date, and I'm not allowed to say one even if I did. But basically, the idea is that we want this in their hands as soon as possible so that they can look at their houses, look at the way the game is going to work, tell us what they feel about it, tell us you know what they like, what they don't like, and then we move on to the next phase of our development, which is building the city that all of those houses are in so that they can then wander around the city, you know, see the layout, get a feel for the size and scope and, and you know, sort of atmosphere of the game and, and comment on that. And then moving on all the way, you know, from there to full-blown online with just the city to expanding the world to, you know, finally, hey, the entire world is here and every single system is online. Um, I- and we've well, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's funny. I actually had a question on here that was uh, about development in your guys' process. And specifically, do you guys focus on one thing and get that as polished as humanly possible and then move on to other features? Or do you get like a, here, let's get a rough draft of what the game loop is going to be and then we'll test that out and then start you know, adding more stuff? Like, How, how does that work for you guys? We're kind of a little in the middle. Um, so, for example, when we when we do finally put out the that client with the housing that I was talking about. Um, what we're putting out first is here's the feature complete. You know, what, what, what a traditional developer would call the alpha, right? Here's the alpha. Um, and we won't call this phase done until we have iterated from that first alpha to, okay, everything that we have set as our goal for this phase is not only done, but tested and vetted. Um, then we'll move on to phase two. Though to be fair, that's not exactly um, the whole team working in lockstep either, right? So there are already people, uh, myself included, who are working on the next phase of development, even as we're wrapping up the first phase and getting the client ready for its alpha release. Um, but generally speaking, we first try to get something in people's hands as quickly as we can, and then we'll polish and iterate it until we're happy with where it is. Then we'll move on to the next step. So what are your plans on collecting the feedback from people? So if the, if you're going to get it in their hands quickly, how are you guys going to actually get that and then and then work on that? Is it Reddit? Is it your forums? Is it Twitter? Is it how how does that work? Kind of all of the above. Um, mostly it's our forums, and we maintain an IRC channel for our founders so that they can talk to us directly throughout the entire day. Um, in fact, I often get in trouble for spending too much time there. <laughs> um, but the The other thing that we're doing is because of how much of the game is dynamic and sort of based on the state of the world from day one, we've started building out our metric systems. And so even without directly giving us feedback, we're paying attention to everything they do in their houses, everything that works, everything that doesn't work. And we're sort of capturing that, you know, in in an almost Orwellian level of completeness so that we have as big a view of what's going on as we can possibly get. Um, And that's kind of, like I was saying, sort of necessary to the way the entire game itself is going to work in the long run. So we have a a system called the virtual DM, which sort of mines all of this metrics data um, that our our metric system captures and determines the state of the world and then decides from there how to adjust the content of the the prepackaged sort of um, procedural content, uh, how to adjust that to respond to the current state of the world. And so considering how important all of that metrics gathering is, it's one of the reasons that we put it in immediately, but also it's going to help us develop. Okay. Um, I had a question pertaining to recommendations for people that are trying to get into the industry and specifically for systems designers. What would you recommend for people that are, are brand new to the industry trying to get in? Yeah. Wow. System designer is a hard one to get into first because everybody has ideas and in a way, the fact that your ideas are better than other people's isn't going to be obvious, right? I mean, we like in the industry, people love to say, hey, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's implementation that matters. And so if you're a systems guy, selling ideas is like kind of what you do, right? Um, the trick is your ideas have to work. And so my advice is put a demo together. Make, make a portfolio that is check out this combat system I created or, hey, look, I built this alchemy system or... You know what I mean? Design a design a system and make it happen. I mean, and, and nowadays with, you know, all of the various uh, consumer level game engine is a weird set is weird way to say that. But of all with all of the, the game engines that are out there these days, you don't even need to be an engineer to pull that off anymore. And so my advice would be make something that works and show you can do it. Excellent advice. Um, if there was one thing specifically that you could change about the gaming industry, what would that thing be? 
<laughs> our cynicism, man. And I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. But so many times I have been in rooms and I've heard what, if you really think about it, would be perfectly great game ideas just shot down because we've all heard so many pitches and we've all seen so many Kickstarters fail. And we've like, we are so convinced that everything is terrible that we end up making things even more terrible as a result. And I think we need to fix that. We need to get the wonder of, of games back, not just in the games we make, but in like ourselves you know what i mean yeah absolutely uh twitch now is like kind of a big thing in the game community um do you guys have any plans for revival doing twitch streams or uh, yeah we do we've actually done a a few where we just sort of showed people the houses we were building um but we we sort of are holding off right now until we have cooler things to talk about but uh we actually, uh, there's a, a group of people called Theory Forge who do uh, a revival themed Twitch every Sunday. And so a bunch of us, even right now, even though it's not our stream, we'll hang out and answer questions for people in their chat and stuff. Because candidly, we're as hooked on the Twitch thing as everybody else. But um, eventually we'll get back to streaming our own stuff as well. Um, one of the things I really want to do is like Q&A sessions with our fans because we get, you know, through Twitter and, and through private messages on the forums, I get all kinds of interesting questions. And even on the forums themselves, because we're developing this in the open and we're not really, you know, held back by typical NDAs, I get to answer all kinds of cool gameplay questions. But, you know, there's probably only, what, 400 people on the forums or something like that? So I would really much rather do that on Twitch where a bunch of people could see it. But we're just not really there yet. Yeah, understandable. Uh, so... Ilphonic is using Unreal 4, correct? For uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We actually uh, started with CryEngine and then switched to Unreal. Yeah, we I talked with Chris a little bit about that, and you guys were going through kind of like the vetting process, and you realized, okay, we're going to switch over to Unreal. Um, do you have any recommendations for people that are trying to learn Unreal um, and sort of get an understanding of the system as you know, as a crew that adopted the system? Uh, yeah, so you know, it's it's super easy. Uh, almost dangerously so. So like, you know, for example, when we first picked up Unreal, we jumped into Blueprint, which is their their sort of visual scripting system. Um, and we started doing all kinds of basic interactivity in Blueprint. And we were like, this is amazing. This is going to make the work easy, right? Like designers can do it. And one of the things we forgot is that the Blueprint system doesn't really care about efficiency, right? And so like, you know, depending on the, the designer or the person doing the visual scripting, the logic to open a door, it can be way more expensive in Blueprint than if you just had an engineer actually take what you were doing in Blueprint and turn it into real code. Um, and so it's easy to like lose sight of the fact that just because you got it working doesn't mean it's done. Um, and so my, my advice would be be careful, you know, just learn what its actual limitations are because they're not self-evident. Uh, solid point. Uh, I also had a question about um, when you guys are iterating on something, when do you get to a point of where you can verify, yep, this is good enough? What What is good enough? Or, you know, I don't even want to say good enough because that sounds like, yeah, I guess it's good enough. But, <laughs> you, you know, how, how do you get to a point of where you say, yes, this is solid. Let's move on from this. Um, yeah, you know, that's that's actually tough. So um, one of the things we do is we, we review everything uh, as a group, right? Uh, and we do this with a, a full like official review at the end of every like push to get something done but the other thing we do is even when we're like yeah that's working exactly the way we want it that's good that's good we can move on every time we go and look at something else we still consider all of the other things so like for example um you know i was mentioning that we did all of our basic original interactivity and in blueprint and then switched over to doing it in code after we saw that we had some efficiency problems um so even after that, whenever we would do a review of like, you know, say, for example, uh, one of the massive estates that that that, that exists in the, the starter town, when we go through every room, we don't just review the work that's being done on the estate. We also review, hey, now that we know what these environments are like, does lighting a torch to work the way that we think it should? Does it feel right? Does that fireplace actually belong there? You know what I mean? Like we look at all the things that we had already settled just to make sure that they're still right. And the result is often that, you know, maybe we're never really satisfied that maybe good enough is never enough for us. But at the same time, we at least stop ourselves with, Hey, that fit all of our goals first and put it in the game before we keep, you know, going back on our, our revisions. 
Um, we are kind of a group of perfectionists though. So it's a tough one for us to stop. It really is. What feature are you looking forward to the most, uh, with, with revival? Uh, you know, I, it changes from time to time. Um, so I, I think my favorite like player facing feature right now is we have this system of like reading signs and auguries, you know, from tarot card readings to, to like looking up at the constellations in the skybox and determining whether their positions and conjunctions can mean an omen for content to come that I haven't actually seen in other games before. Uh, and so right now I'm super enamored of that, but all of that runs off of this information system in the background that we call the tag system, which honestly is the most important and maybe coolest part of the game. And so it's like, if I was answering overall, that's clearly my favorite feature, but that's like saying my favorite feature of a car is a slip differential. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not <laughs> yeah. particularly sexy. Right. Um, but the things that that system lets us do are things like divination or, you know, like I said, astrology, right? And like, these are not just mechanics, but full-blown occupations in the game as a result of this information tagging system. And I think that's pretty amazing. Um, so uh, you guys started out with giving people, or you're going to start out with giving people access to housing. Uh, why housing first? Uh, you know, honestly, it was about scope. Um, so we have this huge world map of all of the things that we want to build. And we were like, well, we need people testing this as soon as possible. So what's the smallest thing we can build? Right. And we were like, well, a city has all of the systems in it that are going to be tough to do in this game. It's going to have all of the NPC AI. It's going to have the living economy. It's going to have its own suite of, you know, procedural content. So what we need to do is build a city. And we were like, okay, that's a great idea. So how do you start building a city? And we were like, well, I suppose you figure out what buildings are in it. And, you know, from there, that sort of naturally segged into, to, well, where's everybody going to live, right? And so even though we technically started by designing the city, we realized that the first, you know, Lego block of the city was housing. And since we knew housing was a feature that had to be in the game one way or another just because of its sandbox roots, we figured, hey, that's where we're going to start. Um. Something that uh, I find kind of interesting was was the uh, the DM sort of aspect that you guys are sort of developing. Um, for people that missed the episode with Chris, can you kind of talk about how you're going to have sort of these game master DM sort of uh, experiences set out into the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely the the coolest like procedural thing that we're doing. So on top of the the you know the the sandbox world. We're going to have a, a team and they'll be working in shifts, you know, three shifts every server. So there's always 24 hours, seven day a week coverage um, of live storytellers. And live storytellers are like animators, game designers, actors, writers, um, all working together. Um, when I say animators, really, I mean generally artists, but all working together to both create new content and introduce it into the world in real time. And, and the way they'll do this is more like akin to you know, do you ever see the Truman Show? It's kind of like that, right? It's it's both improvisational and um, produced ahead of time in that there's overarching agendas for the major powers and stuff in the world that are laid out on a like episodic sort of basis. And our episodes generally run about a week is what we're planning. Um, but there's also responding to the conditions of the world, right? And so the live storytellers on one day could be, you know, setting into place a bunch of NPC cult members who are trying to raise Cthulhu. But in that same day, part of that same team is off over in Crown's Rock, uh, simulating a run on iron because they noticed that one of the guilds is trying to produce a bunch of swords for a war and they wanted to make that challenging. Right. And so from, you know, little things all the way up to the big sweeping sort of epic that is, revival as a whole these guys are you know g dms is really the right word they, these guys are the architects of that story and they make sure that it happens all the time um and this was actually an idea that chris and i had before we started working on what would become rift um, we thought how cool would it be if you could you know take the elements that make live tv interesting that that makes this this reality television stuff compelling and put that into the the cool settings and stories of an online world. And so 
everything that storytellers do is sort of based on that that concept and even structured around similar goals and ideals the the, the writer's room that is the the core of our live storytelling team works a lot like the writer's room of like a soap opera or a uh, or a reality show so how different are servers going to be um, as a result of this do you think uh potentially vastly different so one of the other things that we're doing um, more on the procedural side is that the agendas that each of these major powers have can be procedurally generated. So the start of a server, uh, the start of a server, the basic conditions at the start of a server rather uh, dictate which, you know, agendas can move forward and which ones can't. Um, mind you, all of that's still guided by the storytellers on those servers that have them. The result should be that servers can diverge wildly from each other. It's why they actually have separate storytelling teams, and we're not trying to do one team covers every every server. Um, we don't want that. In fact, we explicitly want the servers to be different from each other. Uh, we'd love it if players, you know, want to cultivate characters on multiple servers because that's that's sort of the, the proof in the pudding, right? That's how we know we built a compelling product. So, how big of a jerk are you going to make the DM that are in the game? Like uh, when you have the computer kind of deciding from a, you know, RNG sort of perspective, are you going to make situations where you're like, not only is it raining now, but we're also adding thunder and a bunch of scorpions just came out of the ground. (laughs) (laughs) That, that kind of thing will happen from time to time. Though generally speaking, we actually want, um, you know, it's kind of like that episode of Futurama where Bender ends up in space and meets God. We, we want it. If we do it right, you won't ever know that we were there at all. You know what I mean? Like we generally don't want it to be over the top unless the circumstances of the world have actually like dictated, Hey, over the top stuff has to happen here. Um, and so most of what the storytellers will do will be things like possess NPCs and offer a player a job. And that player won't necessarily realize that in doing that job, they're totally screwing this other guild's plans over here. Right. And so, the, the idea is that all of these little steps together will build the overall milieu that is the story of Revival. Sounds compelling, man. Um, this has been a fantastic talk. We are uh, out of time, unfortunately. But, sir, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this today. Uh, of course, you're, you're going to say Revival when I ask this question, but what do you want to plug? Anything else? Anything you want to talk about? Uh, revival. <laughs> 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 no, but seriously, uh, you know, one of the things that we like that we like most about what the way we're developing revival is that we get to talk to people who are interested in the game every day, you know, come to our forums. If you're a founder, make sure you get on the IRC. We want to talk to players. We want to hear what they think about what we're doing and we're ready to listen and answer your questions. So come ask, uh, where can people go to find that information? Out? Uh, revivalgame.com. Awesome. Sir, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and everybody else, thank you for listening. If you want to hear more podcasts, you can go to, patreon.com backslash Stephen Frost or look it up on iTunes for Game Devastation. Thanks for tuning in. Adios.